0: Hey, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a delight to be here with you. Uh, During this fall season, we actually started a message series called Beautiful, Disappointing, Hopeful. And really, it's a series that outlines what the Christian faith is all about. So whether you're someone who's new to faith or someone who's been part of a church community, um, it's really an invitation for us. Like, if someone were to ask you, what is Christianity all about? Hopefully, it's encapsulated in these three words, beautiful, disappointing, and hopeful. And really, there's these two questions that we hope to answer as it relates to this whole sermon series. And really, the question is, first, is, is Is Christianity true? Is it something that's actually... Um, worth putting our faith in? When it comes to not only having faith in something, is it a blind faith into something that's a myth or a fable of some sort? Or is it something that's actually true and worthwhile in believing in? And hopefully what we answer is yes. And number two is, is it compelling? Is it a message that is worth believing in and orienting my life, uh, my posture, and everything around? Now hopefully over these next few weeks as we investigate this story, you'll find that it truly is a story that encapsulates and really describes the reality of our own lives. Now last We talked about how the scriptures actually talk about how um, when God creates the world, he creates it with beauty. So whether it's in nature, whether it's culture, or whether it's people, Uh, God creates the world to be beautiful, and that's one of the things that we explored. And today, we're going to be wrestling with this idea. If God created the world to be beautiful, whether in the natural world as well as our invitation to create and shape the world, or whether as human beings, just the inherent dignity and worth that's found in every single human being, um, what is our proper response to that? Uh, And really, today, um, we're going to talk about this word called gratitude. Uh, So do me a favor, high-five your neighbor and say, what are you grateful for today? That's right. Now I realize some of you are going to start talking. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to start talking. Um, It was meant to just be a question, Um, and but we're going to get to that question a little bit later today. How's that? that's right, gratitude, and what does it look like? Now, here's the thing: in the in the scriptures, both the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, uh, there's actually this song book called the Psalms that are constantly written. That, in light of God's beauty. Uh, there's a response that people have. And the response is one of worship and of praise. So check this out. Psalm chapter 95, verses one to seven. Look at what it says. It says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Do you see this invitation of a God, this creative God, that the response is one of gratitude and praise of thanksgiving. Look at what it says. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Uh, Now, this word worship, it actually comes from the old English worth-ship. So, in other words, like some of you might, might say, like worship, that sounds like such an archaic religious word. Well, actually, if you think about it, if it comes from the Old English, that means worth ship. It's what do we give worth to in our lives? Now, whether you're religious or you're not, the reality is we give worth to, to, to different things and elements. Maybe it's our career, maybe it's our ambition, maybe it's our bank accounts, maybe it's a relationship. And here's what Christians believe. Here's what worship is. Worship is revelation. So God reveals who he is. And like we said in Genesis chapter one, God reveals himself to be a God of goodness and of beauty. And the question is, how do we respond? And what worship is, is responding then with songs like these of gratitude, Now, the reality is many of us, though, we go through life where you're saying, yes, you're talking about how life is beautiful, but it's hard to. And that's definitely the case, which is why stay tuned for next week as we talk about this unfolding story of what it means. Now, here's the thing. Though God created the world to be beautiful, the reality is how then did we end up in a world, though, where this beautiful world is marred and broken um, and has become disintegrated? Now, in the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 3 is when sin and brokenness enter into the world. So God creates nature, culture, people to be beautiful and significant. And check out what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Look, it says, Now the serpent, or Satan, who was um, acting as an agent through a serpent, Satan, who's the adversary, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, this is Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, why is the serpent tempting Adam and Eve this way? It's because when God created the universe and everything in it, as we talked about, he created it to be beautiful. It did have boundaries to it. And part of the boundaries that God puts in place is because if any of us, we don't all live in unencumbered freedom because if we did that, it would be chaos, uh, that, that's why, for instance, we have laws and governance in city-states and things like that. And in the same way, God, is, he's provided boundaries in paradise, which is Eden. And as he provides these boundaries, here's what Satan does. Satan, or an adversary, comes and Satan begins to tempt Adam and Eve and says, did God really say that? Did God really put this boundary here? Now, look, look at what else it says. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but, but, did God say, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. In other words, Eve now knows, hey, these are the boundaries that God has put in place. Now, look at what the serpent does or Satan. Uh, here's what it says. It uh, says, Nope, if we can go to the next slide. For you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what Satan is doing here? Now, for some of you who are like, I can't believe you believe in this hocus pocus, you believe that there's this adversary. Well, what if I told you, like Satan, this outside agent? Well, here's the thing. Most of the world outside of the West believes in a supernatural realm. Uh. Now, you can say, well, the rest of the world, they're silly and they don't believe in kind of rationale and logic and that sort of thing. But the reality is most of the world believes in this other supernatural realm. And I would contend that most people, when it comes to the material world as well as the immaterial world, there's all sorts of um, beliefs out there. And here's what Christians believe, that there is an outside agent called Satan who's tempting Adam and Eve in this moment. And what Satan is basically doing is Satan is saying, like, God didn't really say that. In fact, God probably just told you not to do that because God knows that if you did what he says you're not supposed to do, then you're gonna become like him. And in so doing, the seeds of discontent, the seeds of envy, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe God would hold out on me like that. What's God's problem? The seeds of entitlement. I can't believe God would do that. Like, you're right, I should be able to eat of this forbidden fruit. Now, if I were to sum up, right, like the seeds, and here's what happens, right, Adam and Eve succumb to this temptation, and as a result, sin and brokenness and death enter the world, and the world begins to disintegrate in different ways, and we're gonna explore that some next week, but in this kind of instance, all of these words of discontentment, if I were to describe what is it that Eve is going through when this temptation is presented, there's discontent, there's envy, there's entitlement. Now, if I were to sum this word up, I would sum it up with this word, ingratitude. Ingratitude. Because again, if there's this revelation of beauty and of goodness, and this is who God is, and yet ingratitude, what it does is it spurs and it actually becomes central to sin. Why? Because ingratitude is fraught, with leading towards discontent, with leading towards envy, with leading towards entitlement. And one of the things about the human condition is that we tend, gratitude is not something that comes natural to us. Sure, there are some people who tend to be more optimistic than pessimistic. Um, we call those people Californians. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the reality is some of us, we're predisposed to being more optimists and some more pessimistic. But nonetheless, gratitude as a discipline is often lost. Uh, And what this text shows us, especially when sin enters the world, is that ingratitude is actually kind of central to sin. It leads to sin. I know that when I'm in a place of ingratitude, I tend to be irritable. I say things that I regret, uh, really harsh and judgmental. My family knows that. (laughs) In fact, earlier this week, I was in a bad mood because um, I was feeling ungrateful for uh, my predicament or my lot in life. And so I, my kids, they came home from school. They come home, and I was like, hey, guys, you know, my, my son and my daughter, 11 and 7, and I, I was like, hey, uh, Appa's in a bad mood. And immediately their radar goes up because they know, you know, like, oh, you know, like, let's. Let's leave dad alone. And then, uh, but my daughter Avery, who's seven, she runs up to me and she goes, oh, appa, I'm so glad you're my appa. And then she gives me a hug. And here I was, I was supposed to preach a sermon on gratitude. And she's like, I'm so grateful for you. And, you know, with our children, I've been trying to teach them like, hey, um, you know, gratitude makes such a significant difference. And in this moment, my daughter became my teacher of teaching me what gratitude was like. And then I was like, David, here, come here. Let me give you a hug too, you know. <laughs> and of course, he's like, okay. Uh, gratitude makes all the difference. But there's something about in our hardwiring that it's so difficult to be grateful. I mean, have you ever told yourself this? You know, if I only... Get this thing or this relationship, then I'll be grateful. Then I'll have made it. Have you ever been there before? Right. I remember when I when I moved to the city. Like you got to understand, I grew up. I have a twin brother, and so for most, for all of my life, I shared a room with another human being. And so I remember just thinking. Then I went to uh, you know my brother and I we parted ways, and then I went to graduate school. And in graduate school, I also had a roommate. And so I just remember thinking when I was in graduate school, I'm like, you know, it's going to be awesome when I just, when I can have my own room. Like, this will be glorious. So I remember when I was 26 years old, for the first time, I had my own room. And uh, it was in Elmhurst, Queens. And I remember after about like a month or two of living in that room, being like, I got my own space. here. That's my own chair. It's my own bunk bed right there with my desk underneath. And then I was like, you know what? It'd be really awesome if, like, if I could have my own room that was bigger than ten by ten, you know, and that had its own closet. Like, that would that would. I can't wait for that to happen. I mean, it, this is what happens, right? We, this discontent continues to plague the human heart, right? Some of you are like, oh man, if I can, when I just get married, then I will give God thanks, I will praise God. And then you got married. Uh, And so you're like, you know what? Maybe it's when we have kids. Kids, that'll solve things. Then you have kids and you're like, that didn't solve things. Uh, And then you're like, you know what? When the kids, when the kids get older and then they become teenagers. (laughs) And then it's like, oh my goodness. And then you're like, man, if only I could be single again. (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, this is, this is what happens to the human heart. We are perpetually an ungrateful people who have a hard time finding contentedness and stillness and peace. Now, this does not discount the drive to cultivate and shape that we talked about last week. I'm talking about when we get into this place where ingratitude actually leads us towards sin because of the ways that it begins to soil our hearts. Uh, I remember li- watching or, and listening to a podcast this past week, uh, Andre Iguodala, who's an NBA basketball player uh, for the Golden State Warriors, and he was actually talking about the dynamic that exists right now between owners of NBA teams as well as some of the top players. And one of the observations that he makes is he says, both parties, both the owners as well as the all-stars, they all are uh, at odds with one another, and it's because they both want to be the other. He said, NBA players, the superstars, they all want to become owners. They would gladly hand over all the fame and popularity and facial recognition just to have that bag of billions of dollars and to never be bothered and to be able to spend this money however they wish. And so Iguodala was basically saying, players all wanna be owners and owners, they all wanna be players they would give up some of their money just so that they can get more credit for being the one who actually built this NBA championship team. And they want to have the name recognition and they want to be stopped in the streets by other people. And he said, you know, part of the the problem is there's this ego battle happening between owners and NBA superstars. And he said, and both of them just want to be the other. All right, doesn't this so describe the human condition? That whether someone has millions of dollars or is in a certain station in life, at the end of the day this is what ingratitude can do it can soil our hearts and we're never satisfied now the story that was read earlier was a story from Luke chapter 17 and it's a story of Jesus where now Jesus comes on the scene and he's confronting how ingratitude what it does to one's heart now check out what happens in this story It says, now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice. Now, why do they stand at a distance? Those with leprosy back in the ancient world had to be separated physically because of not only uh, how contagious it was, but also for religious reasons. And so, Jesus, master, have pity on us. Now, Look at how boss Jesus is in this next moment. It says, when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, uh, Jesus basically just tells them, hey, just go. And they go. As they were going, they were cleansed. They were healed. It indicates that every single one knew that somehow, physically, they were healed. Now, check out what happens. One of them, when he saw he was healed, this is Revelation right? It's revealed to him. He's healed. Came back praising God in a loud voice. The word for praising is the same word that we get for worship. Uh, We get words like doxology from this Greek word. Praising God. Remember, there's revelation and response. He praises God, and look what it says. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. And by the way, he was a Samaritan, now, why is that clue in there? Jesus has this subversive way, or the, the gospel writers have this subversive way of including these little details. Samaritans were the most unlikely heroes of any kind of story. They were known as heretics and half-breeds and people who were not part purely of the ones who followed God the way they should. And yet Jesus throws, you know, there's this little clue in here from the gospel accounts. By the way, it was a Samaritan who practiced worship and giving Thanks. Now, look at how Jesus responds. Check this out. Jesus asked, wait a minute, we're not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? It begs the question, doesn't it? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, here's a question I'd like to ask you. What do you mean? Wait, why does Jesus say to him, your faith has made you well? Hasn't all 10 of them, haven't all of them been made well? Why is Jesus using this phrase to talk to one person and saying to him, your faith has made you well? What's so particular about this person that's different than the other nine? Well, this phrase, to be made well, it actually comes from the Greek word sozo. Sozo is a word that's actually used uh, throughout the New Testament. It's usually word as this word to be saved. That believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It says in Acts 16, 31. See, but sozo isn't just a word that simply means like being saved from captivity or something like that. It's actually a word that means to be made whole. When you're saved, you're made whole. Completely whole. And see what's so unique about what Jesus is saying to this man. He's saying, yes, the others have been cleansed. They have had their physical bodies healed. But your faith, it's been sozoed. It's been made whole. It's not just your body. It's your heart. And your soul. And what Jesus is indicating is that gratitude is central to sozo, to being made whole. That gratitude is what takes beyond material wealth or physical things that we have. Because the reality is, you could be someone in tip-top shape physically. You could be someone with loads of money. But actually, when you Live your life, and it's full of ungratitude. It's actually a a life that instead of feeling like heaven, it feels a little closer to that other place, to hell. I mean, isn't that interesting? This is what ingratitude does, that it begins to soil our hearts. And what Jesus is basically saying, your faith has made you well. He's saying it's made you completely well. Now, here's the thing. You don't even have to be a Christian to believe that gratitude has this kind of power, Check out this statement from the Mayo Clinic, uh, which is one of the leading hospitals in the country. Look at what it says. It says, expressing gratitude is associated with a host of mental and physical benefits. Studies have shown that feeling thankful can improve sleep, mood, and immunity. Gratitude can decrease depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and risk of disease. If a pill could do this, everyone would be taking it. Your brain is designed to problem-solve, Rather than appreciate, you often must override this design to reap the benefits of gratitude. In other words, again, as human beings, one of the most helpful things we can do is to actually take a posture of gratitude. And yet we are hardwired not to do this. You know what's so interesting, right? Like, Because uh, we live in today, and especially in a place like New York, in the most innovative, comfortable, wealthy nation and time in maybe the history of the world. Like we have the modern comforts of all these apps uh, that allow us to order food with just a press of the button and to get to different places very easily and seamlessly and to handle most of kind of what we do day to day from the, the comforts of home. And with all of the innovation in science, comfort, What's interesting is that with the rise of innovation and technology, there's also the rise of more unhappy people, depression, anxiety, mental health illness. One would think that those two things would go hand in hand, and yet somehow there's no amount of money, there's no amount of comfort that can somehow lead us into this sozo place, you see, this is why Jesus is basically saying, you see, this is how important gratitude is because gratitude is central to sozo, to being made whole. Now, I mentioned, the reality is some of you, though, you're basically like, hey, I get it. It's good to be grateful. Uh, we do that. That's why we have Thanksgiving in November. And we eat lots of food on that day. But, like, don't you see how this practice can radically change one's life? if we can actually respond in a manner of gratitude. Now, the reality is, this past week, I went and visited someone in the hospital. I met with someone who was going through an intense kind of relational conflict in their family. This past week, um, you know, the Jets lost again. Like, there were <laughs> all sorts of painful moments. Um, and the reality is, all of us, we go through difficult Seasons, And some of you, even you're like, yeah, I get this. The idea that gratitude is something that should be practiced. But the reality is gratitude is incredibly difficult at times. And what makes the Christian faith so unique that gratitude would be something that I could regularly be leaning into, even in the midst of disappointment? You know, what's interesting is that when it says that the man who was healed of his leprosy, when he worshiped God, he praised God, and then it says that after he worshiped God, it says that he gave thanks. And here's the word that's used for giving thanks. Eucharisteo in the Greek means to give thanks. Now, if you're someone who grew up in a Christian context, you may recognize that word Eucharist. You may recognize, if you know Greek, you can mean good, charis, like grace or gift, Eucharist. Now the Eucharist is actually a sacrament that's been given to the church, a gift, a tangible expression of a gift of God that was given to us when Jesus, on the last meal that he had with his disciples, what it says is he gathers with them and he, Eucharisteo, he gives thanks. And then he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Take and eat and drink. So that in the midst of whatever brokenness and pain and sorrow and difficulty you experience in life, you might know that I am with you, that I love you, and that I would give my life for you. And the church throughout history, we give thanks because we're reminded that God himself would give of himself. So that in the midst of whatever valleys and hilltops and mountains that we go through, we might worship a God who has given of himself. That we might be a people who can always give thanks even in the valley. I started with a question and I'd love for us to again have this question. And here's a question. Who or what are you grateful for today? Here's what I'd love for you to do. Go ahead and turn to someone next to you, either two to three people. And I'd love for you now to answer that question. Who or what are you thankful for? What is a good gift that God perhaps has given to you? So go ahead and share